Hi everyone, this is Dr. Celine Gounder. I'm the host of In Sickness and In Health. I really appreciate all of our listener support over the first couple seasons of this show. We'd love to keep building that community. So please text or email one friend about the podcast this week. It would mean a lot. Thanks. There is a science of gun control, and that science of gun control has removal of semi-automatic weapons right up at the apex of what should be done. And they're mostly made originally for killing lots of people. There's no real sporting use for an assault weapon. 92% of the Australian community think our gun laws are either about right or need to be toughened up even further. Welcome back to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about health and social justice. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This season, we're looking at gun violence in America. In working on this season of the podcast, I've been reminded time and again how sadly current and newsworthy the gun violence problem continues to be. Since we started releasing this season last fall, there have been four mass shootings in the U.S., including at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh and at the Borderland Bar and Grill in Thousand Oaks, California. Last month, I was researching an episode about the Australian Gun Buyback Program, the episode you're listening to now. I called up Rebecca Peters. Just state your name and briefly explain who you are for, for us. My name's Rebecca Peters. I I spoke with Rebecca on March 14th. The very next day, a gunman walked into two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, with two semi-automatic rifles, a shotgun, and... Horror in Christchurch this afternoon after shootings at two mosques in the city. There are reports of multiple injuries and fatalities. Uh, Whilst I cannot give any confirmation at this stage around uh, fatalities and casualties... What I can say is that it is clear that this is one of New Zealand's darkest days. It is with sadness that I advise uh, that the number of people who have died in this awful event uh, has now risen to 50. With witnesses reporting seeing a man enter the mosque dressed in a military jacket and he just started shooting, they say. The gunman was a white supremacist. He killed 50 people and injured another 50. But in the aftermath of that shooting, and in contrast to us here in the U.S., New Zealand did something very different. Today I'm announcing that New Zealand will ban all military-style semi-automatic weapons. We will also ban all assault rifles. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern announced an immediate freeze on the sale of all semi-automatic rifles. And then she called for a total ban and buyback of semi-automatic rifles, assault-style rifles, shotguns, and bump stocks. And she got it done. We are here just 26 days after the most devastating of terrorist attacks created the darkest of days in New Zealand's history. And we are here as an almost entirely united parliament. Just shy of a month after the shooting, New Zealand's parliament passed sweeping gun legislation. 
The final vote on April 10th was nearly unanimous. 119 of 120 members of parliament voted for the ban. My view is that an argument about process is an argument to do nothing. And I'm not the first politician to say that. The first politician I ever heard say that in relation to gun laws was John Howard when he moved quickly after Port Arthur and for the same reasons we have. New Zealand's neighbour, Australia, suffered a mass shooting in the town of Port Arthur back in 1996. The Port Arthur massacre set off one of the most ambitious gun regulation efforts in the world. In today's show, we'll look at what happened in Port Arthur, Australia. How was Australian Prime Minister John Howard able to bring about such wide-ranging gun reform? Something that sounds almost impossible to us here in the U.S. And we'll ask what happened after Australian gun laws were changed over 20 years ago, taking over 650,000 guns out of circulation, and even more since then in subsequent amnesty buybacks. It seemed like I heard birds in the background. What was it I was hearing? Oh, yeah, because it's um, 10 o'clock. It's now 11 o'clock in the morning here in Australia. I've got the window open and there's birds outside. This is Rebecca Peters. I am a lawyer and I led the campaign in the 1990s in Australia to reform the gun laws here. Rebecca says that in the 1980s in Australia, mass shootings weren't uncommon. In the 1980s, we had a mass shooting about once a year. Just so we're all on the same page, the exact definition of what a mass shooting is varies. But in general, we're talking about three to five or more people killed by the same shooter, and not including the gunman. And in those days, in Australia, as in many countries, there wasn't much thought given to crime or violence as, a, as being preventable. It was just thought to be a moral problem uh, and because people were bad. And the focus was on punishing the perpetrators rather than on preventing it happening. Most of those mass shootings in Australia were family-related, domestic disputes, intimate partner violence, the kind of thing we talked about earlier this season. There was this pattern where there would be a mass shooting, there'd be a lot of uh, grief and pondering and uh, breast-beating and discussion in the media, and usually nothing really happened in terms of policy. Deja vu, right? But things started to change in 1992. A woman living in New South Wales left her abusive partner. She had a family member who was a police officer. And the police officer knew that this guy owned guns, and he said, we have to remove these guns. So he, they went, the police went to the guy's house. They found a gun. They found another gun. They found another gun. They found another gun. They found five guns. And they thought, oh, well, surely that's all he has. But in fact, he had a sixth gun which they didn't find, and he said to one of his friends, they didn't find my shotgun. And that was the gun that he used later to kill his girlfriend, his girlfriend's sister, who was pregnant, their father of the two women, his own son who was staying with the two women at the time, his former business partner and his former business partner's girlfriend as well. So he killed six people with this gun that that had not been found. 
clearly it highlighted the importance of registration of firearms as something that we needed to have, not just in New South Wales, but across the country. So basically, from around that time, we began to be campaigning on a couple of uh, specific points. Like the creation of a national firearm registry, banning shotguns and semi-automatic rifles, and standardizing the requirements of gun ownership. Rebecca was working as a volunteer, leading the campaign. It was called the National Coalition for Gun Control. There was also a sense, because we did have big tragedies on a semi-regular basis, we knew that um, they would keep on happening. And we were waiting for a moment when there would be a lot of interest again, which was basically the next big tragedy. And we wanted to be prepared with solutions. And um, we didn't, of course, know when it would happen, but it turned out to be at the end of April, 96. It was a Sunday afternoon and I was at home and I heard it on, I heard on the radio that there was a shooting. But first, a scene of horror and carnage in the Tasmanian town of Port Arthur tonight. And it said, you know, s several people have been shot. And then through the course of the afternoon, the like every few minutes, they would say, you know, the death toll has reached 8, has reached 10, has reached 13, has reached 18, has reached 20. It was just through the course of the afternoon, the numbers just kept going up and up and up where as many as 25 people have been shot dead in Australia's worst massacre. It became clear that it must have been a semi-automatic rifle. Police at bay is thought to be holding at least one person hostage. In the end, 35 people were killed in the Port Arthur massacre. Another 23 were wounded. Suddenly the tide changed. It was overnight. This is Philip Alpers. He's a professor of public health at the University of Sydney. John Howard was the brand new... Prime Minister, he was the most conservative Prime Minister in decades, and he had a knee-jerk reaction. He said, and he's said it ever since. We showed a national resolve that the gun culture that is such a negative in the United States would never become a negative in our country. The same theme he's repeated over and over, we will not go down the American path with regard to guns. Now, he was a great friend of America, a great friend of George W. Bush. Uh, he, uh, George Bush called him uh, America's sheriff in this part of the world. And so he was no left-leaning liberal. I mean, if I'd backed off, I'd have looked hopeless and weak, and people would have thought, well, you know, he's not fair income. How many more people need to be murdered by a madman to convince the government to do something? Those sorts of things, if you don't deal with them decisively, they, they weaken people's faith in the institution of governments. That was John Howard speaking in a documentary. He called for a ban on semi-automatic rifles, like the ones used in Port Arthur, as well as automatic guns and shotguns. And then he called for a buyback of all such privately owned guns. John Howard just decided to do something about it and took only 12 days to do it. 12 days. How could such a massive change happen so fast? He was horrified, absolutely horrified at what happened. We all thought that this was a foreign problem, that it couldn't happen in Australia, and here it was happening over and over again. And Port Arthur was the last straw. He simply called his advisers in, and it so happened 
that all the paperwork was already there. The various Australian um, inquiries and the Australasian Police Minister's Conference had been talking about this for more than a decade, and every single inquiry had come up with the same recommendations, basically, to change the law. And so all of this was on paper, ready to go. It's just that nobody had done anything about it. I can remember discussing this issue with some of my staff and one or two of them said to me, you're not really thinking of banning all semi-automatics, are you? And I said, yes. I said, we might as well go for broke on this. The moment John Howard said, go for it, all the, um, the ammunition was already there. They already knew what they wanted to do. There was political will, first and foremost. There was a decade's worth of recommendations to back up that political will. Philip also thinks it mattered that Howard was a conservative leader. It probably couldn't have been done under a, a liberal, uh, a, a, a Labour prime minister. It had to come from the right wing of the party, the centre-right. There was pushback, though, especially from the rural voters who'd help elect Howard. But after Port Arthur, there was a broad base of support for gun reform. Organizers like Rebecca were able to rally the troops from some surprising quarters. There's a group of men, uh, of shooters in Australia called the Professional Shooters Association. And they are people who are kind of contracted to go into national parks to deal with the, like an infestation of wild pigs, for example. They're like real crocodile dundee, you know, these outdoors guys on horses and they're the most macho of the machos. And they said during the campaign, if you're out here uh, with a semi-automatic trying to hunt deer, then you're a city boy who shouldn't have a gun in the first place. Like they recognized that semi-automatics were not, you know, that you, that they weren't useful for civilians. They, they, they weren't justified in terms of the danger of the product. So, and also the other thing was that the rural population isn't just male farmers. The rural women's organizations came out strongly in support of the reforms because rural women's organizations were very aware of the problems of youth suicide and of domestic violence. There was a national attitude adjustment around these mass shootings that we had. The whole country basically fell into line with gun control. When the Port Arthur shooting happened, straight after that, there were 90 to 95 percent approval ratings in the opinion polls for what John Howard was doing to, to impose gun control right across Australia. It's been more than 20 years since Australian gun reform. So what difference did it make? We'd had 13 mass shooting incidents in this country in the 18 years up to and including the Port Arthur massacre. Now, in the 22 years since that time, we've had not a single one. Um, it, it really stopped, stopped those incidents in their tracks. That's Simon Chapman. He's a colleague of Phillips at the University of Sydney. Together, they published a study on the impact of the National Firearms Agreement in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Some critics of Australia's gun laws argue that these were rare events to begin with, that Simon and Phillips' study amounted to a statistical fluke, that Prime Minister John Howard just got lucky with his timing. Well, 
I've got news for the uh, the gun lobby. Um, I've just been working with some very senior mathematicians here to look at the odds of uh, no massacres in 22 years following 13 in 18 years before that. And the odds of that happening being due to chance are infinitesimally small. After I spoke with Simon in 2018, there was a murder-suicide involving a family in Western Australia. Seven people, including the shooter, were found dead. This was the worst shooting since gun reform was passed in 1996. But it wasn't the kind of mass shooting that makes the headlines in the U.S. every few months, the kind where gunmen kill strangers indiscriminately. Suicides and murder-suicides involving family and close friends, those rarely make the news here. And on that front, the Australians have also made progress. The biggest reduction is in uh, is in suicides. The uh, the uh, total lives saved is, in, according to Christine Neal and I, is around 200 lives per year, uh, and that continues to this day. This is Andrew Lee. Andrew does a lot of stuff. Sure. Uh, my name's Andrew Lee, the federal member for Fenner in the Parliament of Australia. Uh, I was a professor of economics at the Australian National University before entering Parliament. Uh, and alongside being a parliamentarian, I host my own podcast called The Good Life, uh, which is conversations with interesting people about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. But I called him because of his research on Australia's National Firearms Agreement. Andrew and his co-author Christine Neal went a step further than Philip and Simon. Andrew and Christine looked beyond mass shootings at how suicide and homicide rates were affected by the buyback program. So Australia's got uh, eight states and territories, and there were different amounts of guns bought back in, uh, in those states and territories. So we were able to ask the question, uh, if you had a jurisdiction where there were more guns taken out of circulation as a result of uh, the National Firearms Agreement, uh, what happened to your gun firearm, gun suicide uh, death, death rates? If you've heard episode 12 of this season, you know this is a big deal. What happens when you've got fewer guns? That's been a hard question to answer here in the U.S. Australia's gun reforms were nationwide. This was a chance to study the impact of gun regulation without worrying about guns crossing state lines. So, I mean, that's the great advantage of Christine, Neil, and I looking at the interstate variation. Uh, there, you're, you're stripping out the time trend and you're simply asking the question, uh, if you compare a jurisdiction like uh, the Australian Capital Territory, uh, where there was very few firearms brought back, uh, you see a fairly small reduction in, uh, in firearms deaths. Tasmania, there's a very large number of firearms brought back and there's a very large reduction in firearms deaths. Uh, so when you, you exploit that interstate variation, uh, you're able to get around the, uh, the simple, simplistic critique that, oh, this would have happened anyway. Andrew and Christine estimated that gun reform has saved the lives of about 200 people every year since 1996. These are people who would have otherwise died in gun-related suicide or homicide. So I think it would be helpful to put sort of the suicide numbers in context because the U.S. has a much larger population than Australia. So if you were to extrapolate the the prevention of, of deaths from suicide in Australia to the U.S., what would we be looking at? Yeah, so pretty much any Australian number I give you, you can multiply it by 15 or so, which is about the uh, population scale difference between Australia and the United States. Um, so if I tell you uh, uh, 200, then uh, you can immediately turn that into 3,000 in the US context. 
um, a, a similar number of people than lost their lives in the tragedy of 9-11. Let that sink in. Australian gun laws prevent the equivalent of 3,000 deaths per year in a country the size of the U.S. Deaths that could have been prevented, like Zoe Hall's. Zoe Hall was my mentor at the law firm at which I, uh, which I worked. By tragic uh, coincidence, she was uh, on holiday down in Tasmania uh, at the, uh, at a, and she was at a service station just outside the Port Arthur site uh, when Martin Bryant came through. Uh, he murdered her and uh, the, her, her then boyfriend. I remember uh, the, the funeral, the church packed to overflowing, the parents who just couldn't believe that this gorgeous young woman's life had been, uh, had been snuffed out. And yet, even after so many Australians bore witness to this tragedy, there's been some backslide in its gun laws. Philip Alpers again. There's been slippage in every state. The gun lobby has whittled away at the edges at local politicians and got this watered down and that slackened off and, and this um, diluted a little bit. And gradually the law has been, has been uh, walked back in every state and territory in Australia. Complacency is the enemy. For example, the handgun regulations were relaxed in New South Wales. Rebecca Peters. The law on handguns was you had to join a club and then there was a period of time when you couldn't actually use a handgun. You had to attend the club for a while and, and basically earn your trustworthiness before you were allowed to use a handgun unsupervised. But pressure from Australia's gun lobby led to a loosening of the law. A couple of years ago, we had a young woman with a florid mental illness who joined a handgun club, and um, the law no longer required her to be supervised while she was at the club. So she walked out of the club with a handgun and went to her father's house and killed her father. She had a kind of paranoid delusion about her father. And... That has highlighted uh, the weakness in, of this requirement. Rebecca says some Australians have forgotten the reason why the National Firearms Agreement was passed in the first place. I saw something about an opinion poll recently that said, um, that asked how important is it to maintain Australia's gun laws. And older people felt strongly that it was very important because they remembered 96. Younger people didn't feel it was that important because they have never lived in an environment where, um, because because they, all their life gun violence has been very, very low. <laughs> so... Well, it's actually quite similar to the situation with vaccines in the U.S. You know, we have this whole anti-vaccine, you know, vaccine refusal movement. And it's because you have these parents who have never seen the measles, who've never seen, exactly. you know. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, that's actually a really good analogy. You know, supposedly one of the differences of human intelligence is that we're supposed to be able to learn from the experience of others. Like, we don't, we're not required to go to, to burn ourselves to understand that it's hot. We're able to take on the information that someone else tells us, that's hot, you'll burn yourself. But um, in some of these issues, it just seems like uh, people have forgotten. The passage of Australia's National Firearms Agreement didn't miss the attention of the NRA. The gun lobby has this 
this line that they run, which is Australia banned all guns, and now they're now Australians are cowering behind locked doors because they're at the mercy of criminals. It's just like ah. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, the NRA has used these ads to drum up support in the U.S. for laxer gun laws. One ad was so misleading that Australia's Attorney General demanded the NRA take it down. In the 1990s, the NRA even donated money to Australian gun rights groups. It didn't go over well. That caused such a ruckus. Philip Alpers again. That caused such a backlash against Americans and the National Rifle Association and the American approach to gun control that they really suffered for that. And they have never, the local groups have never publicly acknowledged that they're getting money or assistance from the U.S. gun lobby ever again. Do you know if the American NRA is, in, is involved in some of those efforts to, to roll back the National Firearms Agreement? Not openly. There's no proof that the NRA has taken any direct interest in the Australian gun lobby since um, the mid the early 1990s. And that's because they got such a bloody nose the first time that they funded the Australian gun lobby. As soon as that became public, it just caused such a backlash that no Australian gun lobby group in its right mind would accept publicly accept money and help from the NRA. Of course, they might have done it secretly, but we would never know. Well, it turns out Al Jazeera completed a three-year undercover investigation uh, and have unearthed that uh, One Nation, a political party in Australia, has made various approaches to the NRA in the United States, but also uh, representatives of the Koch brothers, very wealthy individuals uh, in the United States. This is Roland Brown. He's the vice president of Gun Control Australia. He's talking about an investigation that came out in March. It uncovered that a far-right political party in Australia was looking for as much as $20 million and other support from the US gun lobby to influence elections back in Australia. They have given uh, One Nation uh, seemingly the same advice that's propagated um, throughout the United States by the NRA when there's a mass shooting, which is to criticise uh, gun control activists for dancing on the graves of the the victims and profiting and claiming that uh, gun control activists are profiting uh, and benefiting um, from these kind of mass shootings. I'm pretty sure that particular uh, bit of advice is going to go nowhere. I doubt One Nation is stupid enough to try and advance that in Australia. Al Jazeera found no evidence that the Koch brothers or the NRA gave One Nation any money. But their reporting shows that even if the NRA doesn't go to Australia, the Australian gun lobby will go to the NRA. We're going to see an increasing um, focus in Australia um, on the relationship between what, uh, right, white supremacists, the far right of politics, um, and the demands being made by the gun lobby and the money that uh, has flowed uh, in the past um, into our um, political system um, from the import, especially of uh, firearms 
into Australia and it's going to um, provide a focus for uh, reform that's way overdue uh, in this country. One Nation has its roots in Australia's gun reforms. The party's founder and only federal senator, Pauline Hanson, used to be part of John Howard's same conservative party. But she lost her endorsement for office after she made offensive comments about Indigenous Australians. She founded One Nation a year later, in 1997. Well, I have a message for the Liberal and Labor. There is a new girl on the block. And she intends to give them help. She and her supporters tapped into the outrage over the assault rifle ban and gun buyback to fuel the new far-right political party. During a speech at the University of Melbourne, former Prime Minister John Howard acknowledged that connection. That exacerbated the tension inside the coalition. And I've no doubt that uh, it did contribute to the rise of One Nation. It was an example of uh, of an unfeeling city-centric. This is how it was represented by some of the One Nation people here is this insensitive, out-of-touch city, particularly Sydney-centric government, taking away our weapons. And I I understood how they felt, but I also understood that if we were to have an effective ban, it had to be comprehensive and there had to be very few exemptions. The Al Jazeera investigation into One Nation also secretly recorded Pauline Hansen, in one of the tapes, she suggests the Port Arthur massacre was a conspiracy. One Nation has made guns one of its pillars since its inception, but it's probably best known in Australia for its xenophobic and anti-immigrant ideas. The same ideas that drove the Christchurch New Zealand shooter to gun down 50 people as they prayed. When I set out to research gun violence for this season, white supremacy wasn't the first thing I thought of. But with the rise in racially and religiously motivated mass shootings in the U.S. and globally in recent years, the connection between the two can't be ignored. That coincides with the, com- the group in the society that has a, an attraction to owning firearms. Roland Brown again. Uh, and I don't want to blacken the name of every firearm owner in this country because there's a lot of firearm owners Uh, who are reasonable, uh, community-minded, and very responsible with their guns. But there is a group of them who have this white supremacist attitude, for want of a better word, and armed with uh, firearms uh, makes for a potentially lethal combination. When I asked these Australians what they thought about American gun policy, here's what they said. Total perplexity and sometimes ridicule. Well, it seems ridiculous. I mean... Oh, look, you know, it's common to hear people saying, you know, when they're going to travel to the United States, oh, you know, I'm a little concerned about guns, you know. I I think we're genuinely shocked and surprised that uh, with school massacre after school massacre, uh, there haven't been a political backlash against the National Rifle Association. It was genuinely surprising to them that the U.S., for all its past public health triumphs, has not been successful in addressing gun violence. 
Though the pot had been boiling for some time, it took only one big massacre to blow off the lid and change laws in Australia, and now New Zealand. But here, there seems to be no end to the shootings we'll put up with. I asked Rebecca Peters if she had any advice for people working on gun reform in the U.S. I mean, everyone is operating within their own context, so I'm never that keen to give advice to people in other countries. But uh, some things that have that worked for us were we aimed for the policies and the practices that were most likely to work. We didn't worry too much about how politically viable they were. And one problem is if you focus on, well, this is what we think we can get past, if it isn't something that is actually going to significantly affect uh, safety and prevention, then it can um, contribute to the idea that gun laws don't work. So, and, also, and the amount of effort that it takes to try to get change, you might as well be aiming for the changes that are going to have the most impact in real life, if you actually get them through. I know that there's an argument that says, given the political situation, we even if we just go for small steps, that's all we can get. But I think that it's worth aiming for the policies, the measures that are actually most likely to prevent deaths and injuries. In response to the Port Arthur and Christchurch shootings, Australia, and some 20 years later, New Zealand, passed strict gun laws. In a sense, Australia carried out the real-world experiment. What happens when you reduce the number of guns in a country nationwide? The experiment worked, confirming there is indeed something about guns themselves. Not only did mass shootings go down, but perhaps more importantly, so did suicides and homicides, which cumulatively adds up to a lot more lives saved. In our next few episodes, we're going to turn to the problem of urban gun violence. We'll talk specifically about how that violence is transmitted, like an infectious disease, from one person to another. That's next time on In Sickness and in Health. Today's episode of In Sickness and in Health was produced by Zach Dyer and me. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. Additional music by the Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend about it today. And if you haven't already done so, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. You can learn more about this podcast and how to engage with us on social media at insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. That's insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is In Sickness and in Health.